Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. As we've spent the last several weeks uh, working our way through 1 Peter, and then we got to hear from uh, Glenn and Sonia last week, and then we'll pick up starting today in 2 Peter. And, uh, you know, Jason had covered, as we went through 1 Peter, he covered several things. You know, I'm, uh, he, Peter was telling us how to stand firm in Christ, submitting to the authorities, living in good instructions of the Lord, stewarding our bodies and our resources, and the importance of shepherding wisely. And so a key theme there in 1 Peter is, is how to suffer, but suffer faithfully, and how to stand up and, and do what is right in the face of very difficult situations. But something very particular was said here in 1 Peter 5, 8, he tells us to be sober-minded and watchful as the devil is prowling like a lion. He's waiting to devour those who are weak. And so no matter how much you and I may seek peace and want peace, our adversary, the devil, wants war against us. And will do so in any way. He is prowling like a lion, waiting to stalk. He's stalking and waiting to take down those who are weak. And I was thinking about this over the past few weeks. Um, you know, in the 1990s, for us old enough to remember it, a lot of you are way younger than me, but the U.S. kind of had this spot where we were in this sense of security. Okay, so all through from, you know, the, from World War II up until the 1990s, early 90s, we had the Cold War, right? And we had an adversary, the Soviet Union, who was always advocating, especially Leonid Brezhnev, was always advocating war against the United States and, and banging the war drum. Uh, Nikita Khrushchev, we remember, well, I don't remember even that, but um, Nikita Khrushchev, even in the 1950s, talking about war and banging his shoe on the podium at the United Nations, right? We had this big fear of the communist menace and the Soviet Union in particular. But in 1989, as the Berlin Wall came down, in 1992, as the Soviet Union broke up, we ended up with this, this kind of sense of security. America was on top. The economy was going. We had what we called the peace dividend, where we got to kind of not be at war with anyone and, and directly. You know, there were skirmishes in Rwanda and Kosovo, and for the most part, we stayed out of them. And uh, we had this very good sense of, of uh, peace and safety. And then September 11th happened, right? And it kind of it broke that, that sort of sereneness we had where we thought, hey, we're on top and we're not at war. And, and suddenly we're at war. We didn't ask for it. We didn't want it. But we were at war. Now, we were certainly warned all through the 1990s. And even John Miller, a, 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 a Commentator from ABC News even went out to Afghanistan. They blindfolded him and his crew and took him out in trucks and drove him all over Afghanistan. And he went to a cave where Osama bin Laden was hiding. And of course, he was not a household name at the time. But he did this interview with Osama bin Laden in 1998. And Osama bin Laden said, I am an enemy of the American people. I am going to fight America at every chance. You know, he gave us warning. And even the morning when September 11th happened, I was at work. And uh, one of the, you know, we watched around this little 13-inch TV in black and white, everything unfolding. And at one point, one of the, the people on the news said, you know, this could be connected to Osama bin Laden. And I kept thinking, I know that name from somewhere, right? And I went back to my toolbox, and in the bottom of my toolbox, I had a stack of Reader's Digest magazines my parents had gave me. I'd read them on my lunch break sometimes. And there from 1999 was an article entitled, This Man Wants to Kill You. 
right? It was there in black and white, and it was Osama bin Laden, a whole article about him. And it was interesting because we had warnings, right? And a lot of the criticism went toward our, our intelligence agencies and stuff saying, hey, we had warning all through the 90s, yet we weren't ready for it. And the thing is, is we as a church, as believers, we're being shaken by these massive cultural shifts that are happening. And I think we had sort of this cocoon over the last 50, 60 years where Christianity was the norm, Christianity was accepted, and even for the most part, people who didn't come and worship on Sundays or believe in Christ kind of at least had an idea of what we believed and why we believed it. They would kind of usually say, okay, yeah, it's great that, that you guys want to do this, you know? Um, but over the last 10, 15 years, of course, that has very much shifted. And we as Christians find ourselves outside of that cultural zeitgeist, right? They've drawn a line around and we are outside. And so the thing is, is we can see our adversary, the devil, right, at war with us. But I think a lot of times we're kind of like the U.S. in the 1990s where we've sort of been in our bubble. And now that bubble's sort of being popped and we need to recognize something. We have a mandate to know our faith in order to stand among the devil who is prowling to take the weak. And this isn't just a cultural thing here in America, but even something within our churches here in America. Because there has been a lot of movements toward um, taking parts of the Bible we don't like, taking things that we find embarrassing and stuff. We have, uh, uh, over the last hundred years, mainline churches who have uh, sort of cut pieces of scripture out, right? They don't want to believe in this guy who rose from the dead. That's kind of embarrassing to believe that. Or, um, you know, they turn Easter from Christ arisen to, well, Christ rose in my heart, right? And it's watering down. And the thing is, is even within our churches, from a doctrinal perspective, we have a devil who is prowling, who wants to confuse us or lull us to sleep or help us just think of something other than Christ, I think as we look through 2 Peter, we're going to see two key themes. And number one is ministry of the word. How do we administer the Bible? How do we minister, how do we administer and, and share with one another the word of God? And then that is directly tied to our character, how we live, what we believe, the virtues we hold dear. So again, the ministry of the word and how we handle it is going to directly tie to character. And Peter takes this book, and he's going to show these two items and how they're specifically connected. The character we embody is going to show and reveal how we handle the word. So as we go through 2 Peter, just kind of a quick lightning round through it, Peter's going to call us in chapter 1 to those who are in the faith. He is going to call us to knowledge. And he's saying that God has opened his mysteries to us, and we get to partake of the divine. And this knowledge should lead us to truth and strength and love this godly character. And the thing is, those of us in the faith are going to struggle as well with our sinful natures, as long as we're in the flesh. But our ministry of the word should constantly lead us back to the cross and confession and repentance. And then in chapter two, he's going to start talking about the wolves, the people who look like they might be in the faith, who are trying to show that they're in the faith, but are not in the faith. These are people who are going to try to add and take away from the word of God. They're going to try to take advantage of the faithful. They're going to be like wolves coming in, and you're going to know them partly doctrinally, but also by their character. The way they handle the word, twisting it, changing it, is going to be revealed to some extent in their character, right? These things are connected. And it says that they're going to display bad character, heresies and blasphemies. They're going to be greedy. They're going to be slaves to corruption, and the thing is, chapter 3 really ties this together on how we as believers are to defend ourselves 
from these wolves, how we are to stand firm, steadfast in Christ. And so the thing is, Peter is preparing us to do battle with these false teachers. And he's telling us, here's how you dig your trenches and you build your fortresses. And here's how you know what is true and what is false. And so the thing is, I was thinking even just last night, I added this to my notes. I think of the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, A Bulwark Never Failing. And one of the key calls here that we have is whether we're going to be in God's fortress and take his word as our defense and stand on his word, or are we going to take the human philosophies and the human ideas and water it down and weaken those defenses? So again, good ministry of the word is going to lead to good character, and bad ministry of the word is going to lead to bad character. So while we spend a lot of time talking about doctrine and we think about doctrine, sometimes it's easy to recognize heresy when it's in doctrine. But when we see a person's character, it's going to reveal a lot about how they're handling the word. And so one of the key things that's also been on my mind a lot is, you know, there's a lot of celebrity pastors, a lot of podcasters, a lot of folks who are um, very sort of doctrinally in line with, with what I would teach or what we would teach at this church. But sometimes we see in the character that there's some issues. And we're going to talk about some of that later But remember, um, again, how we minister the word is going to show in our character. So when we break this down today into three sections, only three sections, because pastors always break it into three sections, right? So verses one through four, we're going to see how God granted and promised us all things. And in verses five through nine, we're going to see how growing in knowledge of the word builds our character. And then third, we're going to see how character is a confirmation of our faith what we put our trust in. So we're going to start here, verses 1 through 4. So it reads this, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So it's interesting how he he starts this. I think we as Americans often, like, we have a, a real... Uh, like defense mechanism that goes up when we feel like someone's elitist or academic or something. And so he says this kind of odd statement that we probably would say a different way, but I think it's there because the Holy Spirit guided it when he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, it sounds very elitist, right? Like, oh, to those of you who have arrived, right? Pinky out, drinking tea, right? But the thing is, is it, you know, it sounds like Peter is is being arrogant, but, the, but let's stop and look at that word obtained, right? Obtained does not mean earned, right? We didn't earn this faith. We didn't obtain it because we somehow figured it out, right? We were dragged into faith kicking and screaming against our flesh, right? Jesus did all the earning of this. So this is a very specific faith, right? It's not just any faith in anything. We're, come to, we're hearing the faith, of equal standing with ours, meaning the apostolic faith as, as Peter and Paul and James and John were teaching it. 
Remember, there's a lot of false teachers out in their time leading people into different heresies, branching off of Christianity in different ways. And he's saying to those who are here in the true apostolic faith, and you've obtained this, right? He's actually putting us all on the same plane. He's not elevating himself or Paul or, or John or anything like that. He's saying our faith, equal standing with ours. There isn't a hierarchy in between us and Christ. He's saying us who are together as brothers and sisters. So false teachers are running around with these things, and he's calling to the people of true faith. And we see this in verse 2. How is grace and peace multiplied? Grace and peace is multiplied to us in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. So knowledge is the key word of the day. We're going to be using this word constantly. And so just, just have that. We're going to be talking about knowledge a lot. But who can know God? Right? We see in Job, in Psalms, Isaiah, Romans, right? Who can know him, right? He's higher, taller, deeper. Who can understand and fathom him? So something to understand about this knowledge is it's an ongoing process. We are ongoing students, and no matter how long we live and how deep we study, we're never going to do more than really truly scratch the surface of what God has given us because there is so much more he's not revealed yet. He alludes to, he talks about in the Bible. We can learn a lot, and God has given us all we need to know him. But it's still, he is beyond our comprehension. So we want to grab onto what he's given us and have knowledge of it. We're always students. And despite what some say, we will never achieve a full sanctification in this body. There are some folks, uh, especially back kind of late 1800s, early 1900s, and they would, they would declare themselves fully sanctified. In other words, they no longer sin. They're living exactly how God told them, right? That is not possible in the flesh. And we're going to understand that it is a nonstop process of sanctification, right? We're not going to know perfect character. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more today um, for those of us in the faith and how our character struggles and compare that with how character struggles outside the faith. Again, it's not general knowledge. It's specific to God's promises and Christ's sacrifice. In three and four, you see this action verb. It says, his divine power has granted to us all things to pertain to life and godliness. We've been given all things. And so it's not going to take some special enlightened teacher, a guru who's figured out some formula or, or some kind of... Uh, way to get in touch with God on our behalf, right? This is what the false teachers want to believe. They want to place themselves somehow between us and God. They're going to want to draw attention to themselves. They're going to want to provide you some kind of teaching that you're only going to get from them. They want you to depend on them. And that's not what Peter's saying. He's saying he's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It doesn't mean there's like all this more to come from some special guru, it's through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Right? God has revealed this to us through his word and his spirit. So how does God do this for us? Through knowledge. So he's opened this taste and goodness to us in his scripture. And it's revealed through his word. And so a good teacher is going to take you into God's word. He's going to lead you into the Bible and is going to understand, right, philosophies and economics and politics and all those things are secondary. He's granted his precious and very great promise so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 
So a good teacher is going to take us into the word and, and help have us have that taste, that partaking of the word in God's divine nature. It doesn't happen through osmosis or transcendental meditation, but through knowledge. And knowing the depth of our sin comes through studying scripture. And knowing the heights of God's grace comes through studying scripture. And because the work of the spirit through us to help us understand it, to open our eyes to it, it leads us to faith. When he says this, escaping the corruption, he's talking about that bad character that comes from bad handling of the word. And again, through knowledge, we're going to understand what sinful desire is. So how do we know when our desires are sinful or not? I mean, first and foremost, the Bible has given it to us in words so that we're not relying on our feelings that shift and change through the day because our heart is not a good judge of what is sinful desire. Instead, Romans 7.7, 7, Paul outlines and says, I would not have known what sin is if not for the law. Right? There's a lot of things that we would love to justify in our minds that God has told us not to justify in our minds. Our heart isn't a good judge of it. Sin should be defined biblically and not by feelings or opinions. Now, one key reason we, should, we don't stand for what's right at times is because we don't treasure the knowledge and understanding, right? It's how our society can forsake biblical marriage for a different definition of marriage or, or forsake biblical intimacy for something else or forsake the sanctity of life or forsake service, service to others. And it's how even in the church we can forsake biblical exposition, the good ministry of the word, and sometimes settle for weak spiritual motivational speeches instead of studying scripture. Peter's calling us here to choose that good fruit of God's promises, the good ministry of the word over the junk food of the world, the bad ministry of the word. Why should we go somewhere else, right? We've been given all we need to partake of the divine right here in his word. Paul continues, when we look at five, uh, verses 5 through 9, reads like this. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. See here a lot of words spelled out in a sequence. And also see here in verse 5, it says, because we are to partake in the goodness of the word, we should make every effort, right? He says this, make every effort to su supplement your faith with virtue. So when it comes to faith, you know, Peter calls out in his greeting, the true faith, that true deep biblical faith in Christ, dying on the cross for sinners, rising again, and his promises to save us from judgment. So true and accurate biblical faith is like the table stakes in all this, right? We're not even starting in the faith and working our way through this process of sanctification and stuff if we have faith in the wrong thing. True and accurate biblical faith is what brings us in. And it says this, you know, faith with virtue. So what is virtue? Right? Virtue is the right understanding of good morals and qualities, right? Again, the ministry of the word and how we handle it is going to lead to good character. And so without faith, our virtues are going to end up being human-centered, right? We're going to end up 
you know, looking to ourselves to define it. We're going to look to our culture to define it. We're going to look to some guru or special teacher to define it instead of looking in the word of God to define it. So, you know, when we fight in the culture wars and stuff like that, because the virtues of our country are changing, it's really more of a sign that the faith of our country has changed, right? That people have been leaving the faith in droves, maybe not even leaving church, but leaving faithful, true, accurate, biblical understanding of Christ is happening all over the place, even within churches. And so the thing is, is when we lose that biblical faith, we're going to lose that trust in biblical virtues. And so we fight these culture wars over virtue, but it's really a symptom of lost biblical faith. How do we know if we've lost biblical faith? It's through knowledge, right? Our virtue with knowledge. So knowledge should be informing us what these virtues are. Should be from the Bible first and foremost. Knowledge is what's going to conform us to a biblical understanding of faith and virtue. First Peter 1.13, he said we should be preparing our minds for action. So again, we're at war, right? Studying scripture is like our boot camp right? It's what's preparing us to know and understand the enemy. It's what's preparing and building us up to be able to withstand and be steadfast in our faith. This knowledge becomes the linchpin to everything else in this list. Because next it says our knowledge should be tempered with self-control, right? So self-control is one of the things that as I sat and kind of put this sermon together, I feel the most convicted about because I lack in self-control. And I think we can all look at our lives and understand we lack in self-control. And so when I actually went on the dictionary online and and looked at self-control, it was even more convicting because it says self-control is the ability to effectively manage emotions and desires and their expression in one's behavior. That hurts, right? How we can effectively manage emotions and desires and our expression in one's behavior. Okay. So that hurts. By resting in godly knowledge, though, we should be able to moderate our behavior and moderate our emotions and attitudes with others. When I say nobody's fully sanctified, (laughs) we got it right here, right? Because we all struggle in our interpersonal relationships with anger and frustration, shouting at our kids or or stomping around the house, Right, Self-control, though, is something that's going to come through knowledge, because as we dive deeper in knowledge of the Lord, we're going to understand our sinfulness, and it should lead us back to confession and repentance, not just to the Lord, but to the people around us that we have wronged. So our pride might stop us from admitting when we're wrong. A shame spiral might stop us from coming to somebody for forgiveness. But the bottom line is knowledge of what God has done for us is going to lead us back to the cross, back to confession, back to repentance, and it confirms our salvation anew to us. We see the Spirit's work when we come humbly to somebody to be forgiven, or they come humbly to us to be forgiven, and when we go humbly to the Lord to be forgiven. It's a hard thing to do. And it's interesting how right after self-control comes steadfastness, right? Resolutely and dutifully affirming and unwavering. So knowing God's promises is going to help us stand firm in our faith like a rock and trust in him who makes us to weather the storm. It's what's going to lead us to persevere to the end in the faith. We think of the TULIP acronym, that P uh, in, in, you know, what's called Calvinism, you know, is perseverance of the saints. That when we have faith, we will carry that faith all through our lives. And that's a steadfastness that comes there. 
And why do we need that steadfastness? Because there are false teachers around, right? And like I said, we're going to spend a lot of chapter two learning how to recognize false teachers. And we need to be steadfast and resolute. And we can't do that if we're not in the word. And godliness, having a devoutness in God's promises and instruction. Standing steadfast is only going to be a work of the Lord through us. And we need to be in tune with the Spirit and what God has instructed us so we can recognize His calling and stand in godliness. Then He calls this out, with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. When we can take and put that shame and pride aside, and if our self-control doesn't catch us in the moment, but turns around and leads us back to confession and repentance, because we have knowledge, And because of knowledge, we know what virtues are. And because of virtues, we know what faith is. And it leads us back to the Lord and breaks us down and leads us back to understanding him, that all good things come from him. It's much easier to show and love one another when we're humble. We put that shame and pride aside. But it's only when we understand God's biblical definitions and promises that we're going to understand what real love is. Because we don't have perfect examples of real love among ourselves. We do have it in what Christ has done for us. So the knowledge and depth of sin and grace is going to lead us to see how God has loved others. And how many times do we sit and think, you know, when we go through, say, disciplining kids or maybe with coworkers, and we think, how many more times do I have to tell them that? Meanwhile, God is telling us things over and over and over that the tendencies that frustrate and upset us and other people are the very things we do to them, right? We need a Savior just as much as they need a Savior. And all of these things, faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and affection, they're all prerequisites to love. We're not truly going to know and understand what love is if we're not in the Word understanding what God has done for us. Anything else is going to be tainted with pride and arrogance because we're going to be defining it ourselves. And he gives this warning. Again, he's talking prime, you know, to those who are in the church. And he says this in verses 8 and 9, for these qualities are yours and increasing. They keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So Peter's not talking about false teachers here or people outside the faith. He's talking to us, right? We have a tendency to push back, right? It's, it's much easier to watch YouTube or television or something than get in our Bible, right? It's much easier for us to want to study other topics that interest us, our hobbies and, and history and things like that, than dive in our Bible, Right? And that's the thing, if we're not going in and understanding the faith, right, we can be ineffective and unfruitful. So see, he's addressing those in the faith and recognizing some people in the faith never leave first gear. They might trust in Christ, believe in kind of the virtues and stuff, but never grow in that knowledge and depth that's going to lead them to love, that's going to lead them to self-control and steadfastness. And then there's others who are walking pridefully in the faith. You know, in verse 9, he's saying there's people who are sitting here saying they don't even kind of recall that they need salvation themselves. They're forgetting their own position. We all have a tendency to make these mistakes at times, right? It's a place for us to start checking ourselves. Because if we have faith without knowledge, we're going to end up ineffective and unfruitful. What does he mean here? Again, knowledge is this linchpin. 
Because these good qualities are all offspring of knowledge. It's the fruit of knowledge. So sometimes we can be in a place where we avoid knowledge, right? We don't want to take part in studies. Maybe we forsake getting together on Sundays. Um, maybe we're not really doing any kind of regimen and getting in the Bible on our own. And what's going to happen, right? What, is that, what happens there? We leave a hole, right? We leave a hole that needs filled. And I can remember, you know, growing up in church and things like that, there are some people that basically had this view that, well, you need to accept Christ and be a good person, and the rest is just details, right? And so there was no real discipleship. There was no real uh, growing in the knowledge of the Lord. We weren't going back to the Old Testament. They would say, hey, the Old Testament is just kind of a history lesson. You really just need the New Testament, right? And it left a hole in the people that were involved there. And none of those people are still at that church, right? They've all left. And some walked away from faith. Some walked away from church attendance. Some walked away from uh, that kind of teaching and ended up in reform-type churches like myself. Like, that's how I ended up here. And so when we avoid knowledge, what happens? We start underestimating things like theology and doctrine and its importance. We're going to tolerate weak preaching. And we're going to listen to kind of what's Bible-ish rather than what's actually biblical. We're not going to recognize heresy to even know it and confront it. So the thing is, rather than knowledge, what do we end up with? We end up with ignorance. We lose discernment for what's biblical versus what sounds good. Rather than steadfastness, we end up um, with a weak and unsupported faith. Right? If you try to build something and you do it on, on rickety legs, it's going to fall. And that's the thing. When we try to have faith, but we're not studying and understanding and gaining a knowledge of God, we're going to fall. We're going to be weak and unsupported. Another issue is you can have a very high rate of false believers. People who think they're in the faith, but they have no idea what that faith really means. Right? They don't know what they're claiming. We have believers who define virtues and love by their own standards instead of God's. You know, there's a lot of churches that want you to pray to receive Christ and they don't follow up with something behind that, any kind of, uh, you know, discipling. There's a lot of, like I said, the mainline churches who want to kind of break the Bible down to just a few passages. They kind of do the Thomas Jefferson thing. Thomas Jefferson had a Bible and he famously crossed out and cut out passages he didn't like. Right? So his Bible literally has holes in it where he removed specific things that upset him. I think a lot of times we do that as Christians. When we don't disciple in the knowledge of the Lord, we're going to disciple in something else. And it's either going to be pop culture, it's going to be entertainment, it's going to be philosophy, it's going to be programs. And that waiting lion out on the outside is just waiting for us to be weak right? And is going to want to entice us to those things that might seem more interesting than biblical study. People aren't fed, they starve. It says here in verse 9, for people who lack these qualities are so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. I know Jason's mentioned before, and I've heard a lot from uh, a sociologist named Christian Smith, and he uh, wrote a book many years ago, probably a good 10, 12 years ago, um, and uh, he talked about the faith of young people in the United States, and he said their faith is really more of a moralistic, therapeutic deism. So in other words, rather than holding to orthodox tenets of the Christian faith, right, Christ on the cross for our sins, risen on the third day, will come again one day, 
um, that this is all based on an Abrahamic promise. Like they didn't have sort of, you know, the grammar of that. And so Christianity, as it was being practiced and, and still is practiced by a lot of folks, and I think we all have this tendency to go to it, is more moralistic in its orientation, right? Well, this feels right and feels wrong. And it's therapeutic. It's, you know, Jesus is my therapist. Jesus is my boyfriend. And it's not really deep in understanding Jesus as a true savior on the cross. In deism, right? There's this God, but we really can't know him, right? And so there's never this, this deeper understanding of our standing with God is completely broken and destroyed unless the Holy Spirit leads us to the cross, unless we come in confession and repentance, and so in practice, a lot of people are, are kind of sprinkling Jesus or sprinkling the Bible kind of on their food. Oh, we'll take a little of this and a little of that. I like this and I don't like that. And, and without that deep study, you don't even know what to accept and what not. You end up in that moralistic, therapeutic deism. If we don't understand sin and redemption, we're going to turn faith into therapy or faith into a philosophy. I think there's another risk on the other side, especially here in, in verse 9. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten he was cleansed from his former sins. I think another risk that we as brothers and sisters have, being in the faith, is we can take knowledge and we can use it as a weapon, right? We can take it on the one side and be lazy about it and not chase knowledge. We can take it on the other side and gather knowledge and then beat each other up over it. I can think of some uh, authors and commentators and podcasters and things like that, and it's like, um, even folks, like I said, that we would line up very closely with on theology and a lot of key doctrine. But I hear them beat up other pastors by name and other movements by name because there's certain parts of theology they disagree with. And you can hear it in their voice. There isn't love there. There isn't care. It's taking a, a grand audience and a bully pulpit and taking knowledge that they have and just beating others up and telling these pastors they should be ashamed of themselves or that they should, uh, you know, they'll put words in their mouth and they'll twist the, the points that they make. And there isn't love at all behind it. They've weaponized knowledge. And they take it and rather than having knowledge, they end up with arrogance, right? There's a pridefulness in the fact that they have some kind of knowledge and they want to beat up anybody else who's too dumb to get it. And rather than self-control, they lead from self-assurance. They're right, everyone else is wrong. And rather than steadfastness, you get a stubbornness that's not based on anything biblical. And rather than godliness, you end up in self-righteousness. And rather than affection, you end up with uh, bitterness and broken relationships. I know Jason's mentioned uh, podcasts, a lot of us elders, and some of the, I know some folks are listening to through the Mars Hill uh, it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and it talks about Mark Driscoll and how, you know, a, a guy that in a lot of ways we would, we would have a lot of, uh, at least in his earlier writings, we would have had a lot of uh, theological alignment with. But when you hear how he berated people in his church, how he abused his power, how he put down those who didn't, dis who didn't agree with him, even pushing elders out of his church and firing them, the entire church broke apart when all this happened left behind a lot of bitterness and broken relationships. And so right now, there's this, this whole podcast even being put together saying, you know, how can somebody who seemed to have theology and doctrine well end up exemplifying such bad character 
and at this point is actually walking away from a, a lot of theology and doctrine he would have espoused before. And the thing is, all that bitterness and broken relationships tell us something, right? When we see that bad character coming out, we can tell they weren't wielding this knowledge with love. It wasn't leading to steadfastness. It wasn't leading to gentleness and affection and brotherly love. It was leading to a pridefulness. So even when we have alignment theologically, there's still something about character that we need to recognize uh, shows how we handle the word. We can have all our theological ducks in the row and still be jerks right? There's something more than just being theologically right when it comes to character. It's going to show how we handle the word. So we want to have theology and doctrine correct, but is it leading us back through this, this diagnostic here? When we have faith and we are biblically defining it, and we understand virtues and we're biblically defining those, and we get to knowledge, what are we doing with that knowledge? Are we taking it and establishing self-control effectively managing emotions and desires in the expression in one's behavior. And that's where, like, when we go back and we listen to this podcast, we can hear it, right? There's a lack of self-control within the way Mark Driscoll was running his church. And I don't say this to beat Mark Driscoll up and all that kind of stuff, but just I think, I think this is a great example within this podcast that goes right along with Second Peter and what we're studying. But when we're falling on self-control and we're not going back in confession and repentance, we're not going to be able to stand steadfast and we see that entire church broke apart, right? In brotherly affection and love, it's left with a lot of bitterness. And so for us, brothers and sisters, we don't want to be ineffective and we don't want to be unfruitful and we don't want to be nearsighted and blind. We want to grow in knowledge But our growth in knowledge should be leading us to a a deep humbleness of character. And without it, we're going to end up running off the rails in some way or another. I think it's a place where we all check our hearts because we all have this tendency. Again, Peter is talking to those in the church here, right? He's not talking about these others. He's talking about us. And I think when we look at this and we, we stop and think about character and how our handling of the word affects our character, it helps open up verses 10 through 15 about how our character is a confirmation of our faith. It's not to say when we're good people, we're saved. But when we're growing in character and we're biblically defining it and we're understanding Christ deeper and deeper, it does confirm our calling. He says this, uh, verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So again, we're not called to be passive, to sit back and just kind of ride the pine waiting for the coach to tell us something, right? The coach has given us everything we know. God has given it to us. Everything that we need to know for faith is right here in our Bible. And he's saying we need to be diligent in our calling and election, practicing these qualities, 
For in this way, there will be richly provided an entrance to the eternal kingdom. It's through this understanding we are going to be saved and we're going to persevere to the end. When we see in verses 12 and verses 15 and stuff, where he's saying, I intend to always remind you of these qualities. You know, I think it right to stir you up by way of reminder. You know, I'll make every effort, right? We need to spur one another on in the faith, leading back to knowledge, leading back to understanding, leading back to wisdom. Right? We have this call to be a true disciple. And along this, we're going to be established in these qualities. I know vaccine's a bad word with a lot of folks, but the good ministry of the word, hearing the gospel week in and week out, studying it daily for ourselves and stuff, it is supposed to help inoculate our spiritual immune system. Right? You think of how the immune system works. It recognizes a foreign invader. And that's the thing. Our spiritual immune system should be boosted by Scripture all the time so that we can recognize false teaching. We're going to hear a lot more about that in chapter 2. We should be established in truth instead. So as Peter knows his end is near, he's trying to help uh, inoculate this church, right, and get their spiritual defenses ready, build the bulwark, build people up, right, go through training. It's like a boot camp. The physical fitness, uh, you know, the way the military does it, and they, they take you out of your neighborhood, out of your home, right? They bring you in, they kind of work you to death till you're kind of like really exhausted, and then they start building you up in what a soldier is. And that's what Peter's wanting to do here with these folks. That's why he's saying, I'm stirring up by way of reminder. I want you to remember these things. He is trying to bring them in and help them to recognize the sinful selves they came from and break it down and build them up in these good qualities and good characters of the Lord. If they're truly in the faith, they're going to recognize it. And he wants to make soldiers ready to go out to do battle against these false teachers, to recognize them and to stand firm against them. So what does this mean for us? I think it means the exact same thing, right? God promises that we get to partake in his goodness, and the world wants us to partake in other fruit. The world wants us to normalize our affection around them, culture, art, politics, economics, social movements. There's bad teachers sometimes even in the faith who want to lead us away from a strong knowledge of the Lord. Let's think about where the word knowledge first appears in the Bible. Okay, God made the Garden of Eden and put Adam and Eve in it, right? And it was good. And he gave them everything they needed, right, for sustenance. Yet he told them, do not eat of the fruit of that one specific tree of knowledge of good and evil. And when the serpent came, right, he deceived. He deceived Eve and Adam failed to lead. And they didn't recognize something, right? They didn't recognize that the serpent didn't actually quote God accurately, He twisted it just a little, right? Their guard is down. They followed the serpent rather than God's true word, right? And they ate of the fruit and were immediately ashamed, and sin and death came into humanity. Now, folks, just like that serpent was crafty and looming and waiting for a weak moment, right? Peter had told us there in 1 Peter 5 that that the, the devil is there like a prowling lion, He's still out there, still wanting to deceive, still looking for weakness. And so from Genesis to Peter to now, Satan wants to twist God's words to to deceive us. And we think about how, like, the Secret Service knows counterfeit dollar bills because they know the real ones so well, right? That's how they train them. Know the real ones so well that everything else looks fake. There's 10 bazillion ways you can fake a dollar bill, right? 
on a copying machine and Photoshop and things like that, you can fake that. But when you know the real one so well, everything else is going to look fake. And we're called to that. We need to know a counterfeit by knowing the truth, by having this knowledge. So we need this true word of God to minister wisely or we're going to be deceived. And we can become ignorant through laziness. We can become prideful and weaponize the knowledge. And those can lead us to be unfruitful and ineffective because we fail to study wisely and develop good character. We can be blinded by pride and self-justify. Folks, we're not called to fight with intellect or wit or tweets or snark or sarcasm. We're called to fight with knowledge. Ministering accurately that word of God that takes us from sinner to saint and takes us from dead orphans to God's children. And we're called to be disciples. So I'm asking for us all to kind of check our hearts. What does our spiritual regimen look like? Are we in prayer? Are we in the word? And what does our character regime look like? Regimen look like? I actually put regime, but anyway. I meant regimen. Spell check. So what does our character regimen look like? Are we students of the word ready to spot the counterfeits? When we're struggling through our self-control, are we going back to the cross? Are we training to do battle with the, the devil who wants to take us down? Are we trusting in the celebrity pastors and stuff like that to spoon feed us? Instead of going directly to the very word we're called to, be a, to, called to gain knowledge in and be a student of. You know, podcasts and authors and, and stuff like that are great. But it's no substitute for the Bible directly. We have a lot of worldly leaders who want to let us down. They're going to leave the faith. They might act in bad character. They might disqualify themselves through their conduct. But the word of the Lord is from a divine author. Okay? That divine author never leaves the faith. That divine author never speaks heresy. That divine author never disqualifies himself and never shows bad character. Instead, the divine author of our faith is the very model of wisdom and knowledge and character. In his word, we're built up in the promises and we're saved from the corruption of the day. Brothers and sisters, we have a calling here to be ready. We have a calling to do battle. And we're in a culture that we can clearly see we're not going to escape battle at some point. I'm not saying physically fighting. I'm talking spiritually Are we ready? Are we in the knowledge? And are we growing in character in order to take that knowledge and share it with the world in a winsome way with gentleness and humbleness, the way God has called us to? I pray that each one of us is in deep prayer and in the word. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that we can come together, we can study your word, and we can be called to battle, ready for uh, knowledge, Lord, ready to be filled and to have your scripture inform our faith and our virtues, Lord, that through knowledge we can begin to understand self-control and steadfastness and godliness and affection and love. God, help us as brothers and sisters to serve one another, Lord, to handle your word accurately, to build each other up in grace and, and wisdom, Lord, that we teach this to our children, and Lord, that we ready ourselves to humbly and wisely take on the dark forces of this world. By the power of the Holy Spirit, give us strength. Lord, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.